live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Good afternoon to everybody, and thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show. I'm Rob Starr, along with the Wizard of Water Hydrology, and one of them, I call him my mentor in all of that subject, and uh, and a great friend and a great peer, Mr. Chris Davy. Thank you very much, Rob. To uh, to you as well. Um, awesome, awesome week this past week with all the stuff going on, and um, out there, you guys got some monsoonal stuff this past week, didn't you? I did not. Oh, you didn't. It's hit mid no. out there, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I think it's more south of here, I, or more north. We did not get anything here except a 115 to 118 degree temperature. Yeah. And right now, right now it's sunny and 107. <laughs> <laughs> You're on a cooling spree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we broke a record. Arizona broke a record for having the most consistent days over 110. Yep. So, it, yep. Yeah, I saw that on the I saw that on the news. That, that was a that was a record for sure. Again, just globally, it's a record, right? I mean, we talked about that a couple of shows ago. Here we are in 2023 with the highest the highest recorded temperature, average temperature on Earth uh, since since we've been taking measurements. Absolutely. And talking about hot stuff, we got a lady who's the head of Maven's Notebook, and she is the wonderful woman who knows everything about water in California and beyond, Miss Chris Austin. Welcome, Chris. Hey, how you doing? It, it is just, I'm going to tell you, it's very lovely up here in the North State, and it is just 88 degrees today, so okay. we are enjoying it. <laughs> wow, and I don't my, know that I'm yeah, I'm sorry for all you folks who are not. I I try not to gloat in the the more milder temperatures, <laughs> but uh, you know, because it's 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 tough. And if you're out there in the middle of the country sweating it out, I I mean, I I feel for you. It 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 can be rough, but it's pretty nice up here today. So, well, um, well a, a nice day to sit outside and sip a glass of uh, sip a glass of wine. Although although if you're up in the North Coast vineyard. Um, yeah. Yeah, you got uh, you got a water order today, didn't they? Those guys, or not not today, but yesterday. I think it was August second. But what was that all about? Oh yeah, the state water board, or I'm sorry, the North Coast Regional Water Board is enacting new regulations now for wineries for wastewater runoff uh, because apparently there's sediment and other things that are getting into the streams and the rivers, so they have a new regulation. For that, and you know, <laughs> regulations are never popular, and this one isn't popular either. Uh, it's not surprising, and you know, people are saying that it's costly to implement this. Um, the problem with uh, dumping sediment into streams is that it can cover up, you know, salmon eggs and other things that are happening in the river. Um, so sediment is an important, it's actually a type of pollution in a sense uh, when you put it into a river or creek, it doesn't belong there. So, uh, you know, so 
there's a reason for it. They're not just trying to make things difficult. But like all new regulations, it requires some changes and it requires some money. Uh, so it's not popular. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see where it goes from there. You also have a similar thing with this, uh, this strawberry growers who use this plastic mulch. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one one section of the big problem, uh, you know, with uh, uh, with our use of plastic. And you know, they have no way to really do anything with it once they pull it up off the fields. They put it down on the fields around the plants. And it's really good because it keeps the weeds out, and it, and the strawberries like it because it it gets they like it hot, so it helps to kind of you know get the plant hot, which the, the which it likes. But they can't you know they can't really find a way to dispose of this plastic when it's done. It's down for a season, and then they pick it back up. And uh, you know what's more is it degrades into microplastics, uh, right. you know, which is getting in our soil. And from the soil, it can get mobilized and go into groundwater. So it's, you know, they're really trying to figure out, uh, you know, what they can do with it. Um, I think this article here is they're mainly trying to figure out what to do with the, that plastic mulch when they're done using it. I don't think they're really addressing in this study the microplastic issue. Um, they're just trying to figure out what to do once it's all laid down. Um, and, you know, recycling plastic, I think what we're really starting to find out is that's kind of a myth. Um, very little plastic is really recycled. It's um, It's... The material itself doesn't lend itself to be recycled. It's not like an aluminum can, which is pretty easy. Um, plastic doesn't really break down. You can't, you know, can't do a lot with it. Uh, for the longest time, we were sending it all overseas until China said, okay, we can't do anything with it either, so keep your own plastic trash. Um, <laughs> plastic is it's, it's the, one of the biggest issues, I think, that we have to address and we are not addressing it uh, not that I see um, and the little things that we do are just nibbling on the on, around the edges we, we haven't even started to well, and, well, for those who are older if they remember well we were probably kids then in the 50s and 60s when everybody says invest in plastic because that's going to be the biggest thing and it, and it was and it still is yeah it's well huge. so you know better living through chemicals you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I don't know what we're going to do about this plastic and nobody's really doing anything much. But nibbling around the edges that I can see uh, this microplastic, it, it's everywhere from the mountaintops to the bottom of the ocean. It's in our water, it's in our food. Uh, yeah. it's, it's everywhere. You couldn't get away from it even if you wanted to. And so I don't, I don't know what we're going to do about that, that aspect. Plastic. Well, you got, know, <laughs> well, you got lots of things like, you, you know, you were just talking about the, uh, the, the regs for the, the vineyards and stuff and, and, and the plastic mulch. Now you got toxic algae, which is imperils all the marine life. 
on our West Coast and even on the East Coast. So oh, yeah. Yeah, it's we've had a lot of uh, sea animals washing up on the West Coast because of the um, algae bloom in the ocean. So sea lions and otters, you know, they're trying to, you know, rehabilitate them and get them back into the ocean. I don't, I'm not sure if the algae bloom is, is gone now. Um, I haven't been seeing any more stories of, uh, of animals washing up, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. It may mean it's just not people are <laughs> not paying as much attention to it anymore. Uh, well, but yeah, and you know what's going on in Florida with you know ocean temperatures over a hundred degrees. Uh, you know, there's some serious uh, serious things happening with our oceans. Uh, well, same, in my, same in my pool, but I bought a pool chiller, so that uh, reduces the water temperature fifteen to twenty degrees. So too bad <laughs> I can't get one for the ocean. <laughs> a pool air conditioner. Yeah. Well, you know, they uh, they tried, I do believe they tried using similar things um, in the rivers back a couple years ago because the water temperature was getting too high in the river for the salmon eggs. So they were trying to save the salmon and even brought in these chillers. Um, I'm not sure they did a whole lot of good because the salmon are, you know, really took a hit. But but they did try, uh, tried in everything. Yeah. Well, there's so much stuff that's affecting the water. I mean, you look at, uh, I know California was trying to propose a new chromium-6 uh, water limit. And, and then there's another agency that said it wasn't, wasn't harsh enough. It needs to be tighter than that. I know. Yeah. I, I, didn't yeah. Cadiz, didn't, I'm sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Didn't Cadiz water years ago? Who owns tons of property out in the San Bernardino County or Riverside County? Didn't they have tons of land they bought from the railroad years ago? And but they were shipping, trying to ship water to metropolitan water, but there was a chromium six problem. Is yeah, that... I, yeah, I don't know if if it's a Cadiz is still out there. It's still a yeah. project that they're trying to do. Um, uh, it's out in the out in the desert there and it's a groundwater project that they want to pump up groundwater uh, and send it to Southern California and actually I think one of the agencies on the coast like Santa Margarita Water District has is bought some of this water um, I, this is a really controversial project and they've been trying to do this for uh, decades literally um, it's a private-run enterprise to, you know, pump up this groundwater, which uh, apparently there's quite a bit of water underneath that desert. Surely doesn't look like it, but apparently there is, and, and they want to uh, pump out this water, and they think they can do it. Uh, they have some system there where they're going to capture evaporation and, and put it back. I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I don't quite remember the details, and I'm not sure how feasible it really is. I think there's a lot of things that have been talked about. A hugely controversial project, um, and uh, I don't believe they have yet acquired the uh, pipeline to ship it to Southern California. 
Yeah, I, we, okay. we, we, had, we had the, the CEO of the company on years ago, probably six, seven years ago, and they said they were building, uh, they wanted to build uh, tunnels or pipelines to get near the railroad tracks so then they can transport the water down to metropolitan water and district and some other places. It was a real interesting story, but they always had the chromium six argument, or other people had that against them. And I well, haven't heard more about that until I read your article. Well, chromium six is also I that is the um, Aaron Brockovich movie. That's the chemical out in Hinkley yeah. uh, that they that, you know that kind of made that movie famous. Um, and it's you know it's kind of there's a lot of places that have it. I think sometimes it's naturally occurring, but other times it isn't. The the and you know whenever they try to set <clears throat> these health standards for water, um, you know there's always a group that doesn't think that they're strong enough. Um, and I don't know if they are or not. I, that that it shouldn't be a um, shouldn't be it me. I, I, that's not my opinion. That it's not strong enough. Or uh, I, I am just saying that you know generally there's a you know it's it's hard to set these limits on these chemicals. You know I I think we like to think that the water that we drink is pure and clean and it's just you know water and a few minerals, um, but there are these constituents that are kind of in drinking water sources naturally occurring, some of them naturally occurring, some of them human-caused, um, that that are just part of the soil uh, in the in the Central Valley. I'm trying to think this one chemical that uh, it, it escapes me now. Um, you know, there are, but there are things that are naturally occurring. So they, and so there's always something in the water the question is, you know, to what degree is it harmful? And so they set limits that the water can't have, you know, can only have so much of a contaminant in it. It doesn't mean it's contaminant-free. It's setting a limit for how much can be present in the water. Uh, well, it's like, well, it's like hot dogs. You know, they have they, they actually say they can contain <laughs> a, certain, a certain amount, right, right? Right, yep. Mr. Davy. I mean, they talk about you could have a certain amount of rat hair in them. Yeah. Ew. I know. I'm, that's really disgusting. But yeah. you know, I, I I do I do a water test every night. I, I you know before I go to bed, I have a drink of water and I turn the lights off and make sure I'm not blowing anywhere. But but no, you're right. I mean, you can't you can't find. Well, I don't know if you can't. I mean, having the purest water in the world. I don't even I don't know who even has the purest water. Well, it used to be actually San Francisco because they used to get their water. Well, they still get their water from the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which is up above. I mean, it's, it's as close to the sky as you can get. And then, it, 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 you know, Hetch Hetchy picks it up and they grab it right there and stick it into a pipeline so it doesn't go down the river. It's actually, they. I think, I do believe that they do very little, if any, water treatment on the water that comes down from Hetch Hetchy. Um, now, so it, it's as, probably as clean as you can get, but there are microplastics in that water 
because there are microplastics in the air and when it rains and snows that brings down the, the microplastics so there are something in there but but very little i think that's about as clean as you can get um you know they they've done uh studies and and there's been articles out periodically over the years that you know there's a lot of pharmaceuticals and other things that are present now in all of our rivers. Um, oh yeah, there's yeah, all, you know, all kinds. It's everywhere yeah. now. It is. Yeah, it's getting everywhere now. You know when you when you think about contaminants, though, Chris. I mean, you know the the handle, the big handle cranking on the contaminant side is PFAS, right? That's those kinds of stuff. I mean, just last I know it wasn't actually last month. It was June, I think. 3M settled for what was it, twelve and a half billion dollars, right? For uh, PFAS yeah, yeah. to get it to get it out of the water. I mean, not just contamination, um, but detection of that. And then 3M devoted themselves also to remove PFAS chemicals or forever chemicals, as they're called, <clears throat> from their own products by 2025. Dupont has done the same. So you know, there's a lot going on on the on the PFAS front. But you know, again, just like you said, like microplastics are everywhere. So is PFAS. Yeah, and we can stop put using it in products, then that would be helpful to stop, you know, continuing to spread it. But how do you clean it up where it is already? I I don't know. I don't well, know. According to Google, the 10 countries that are to be probably because of the cleanest water on the planet is Chile, which I never would have thought of, Canada, second, <laughs> Denmark is third. Who's fourth here? Singapore, um, Sweden, Austria, uh, Iceland, and Germany. There's two more here: Greenland and Switzerland. Those are the ten places that have the most cleanest, purest water on, on the planet. Well, uh, the, you know, I'm sure it, it, a lot of those countries are kind of small, so. It, it makes it easier to have it on a countrywide basis, I suppose. But, you know, there are areas here in in parts of the country where the water is very good, especially yep. if you have, uh, you know, water agencies that, you know, are well-funded and can keep it that way. And then there are a lot of areas in the country that uh, don't have good water. And we still have a lot of those in the Central Valley. That's something that we spent a, a lot of uh time and energy on i think the the past four years uh when newsom came came on board i don't think he was really uh into moving the delta tunnel project forward as much uh, he seemed to change out the the uh, uh leadership at the state water board and i think it was his plan to kind of do something about the contaminated water in the central valley and they have they've found money now there's uh funding for the next 10 years to help uh fix the, the problems however they can be fixed there's a lot of consolidation going on because a lot of these communities with bad water are just outside uh other communities with good water just not hooked up to the water system so um a lot of so and, and when you can hook up uh you know, struggling water system with a well-functioning municipal water system that's just next door, that's just the easiest way to solve the problem. 
So, um, so I think we have been making progress in the Central Valley on the contaminated water situation. We still have a long ways to go. Not everyone's there, but it's nice to see that progress is occurring. Oh, I agree. I totally agree. Well, there's a, there's nothing that I read in your your stuff this morning about the risk for valley fever epidemic. Oh, that's a scary thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have this thing, yeah, valley fever, it's a fungus, and it's in the soils uh, of central California in the desert, southern California as well, um, although it seems like most of the cases tend to be in the central valley, and this is a fungus that just lives in the dirt, and uh, it gets, uh, it, you know, some people can breathe it and can be fine, other people can breathe it and they get sick with valley fever. I don't think they have a lot of treatment for valley fever. I don't think it's fatal, but I think kind of like COVID, you feel like crap for, you know, a month or so, extended time type of thing. Um, and they found that uh, when it's dry during drought years, the fungi are more settled and they have much less cases, but in the years after wet years, um, once the soil gets wet, then the fungus come alive, so they're expecting a lot more cases of valley fever this year. Um, can't really tell you how to, how to prevent it yourself from catching it. Uh, I think it's just one of those things that you just have to live with, but yeah, valley fever... Doesn't that doesn't uh, that affect pets as well? Yeah, I think. Yeah, so. I think so. Yeah, and yeah. and and you know there was a lot of concern after we had the earthquake way way back. I think in 1994 that all the shaking in the mountains was going to uh, cause valley fever. Um, I don't think it did, but there was concern about that. So, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. If, I, I know Chris Davey goes out and he likes the wilderness and he likes the waters and stuff. And I see on television, they have these companies that are, are, are hawking these little things that you can buy. And, and it says you can dip it in any water and it automatically purifies it. and You can drink it immediately. I, 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 I don't know if I would trust that or not to know that it can clean up anything that you take from that water, from any water that you find. I think well, that sort of treatment to water. Yeah. Purifiers, chemical purifiers. <clears throat> They've been out for a while, long before, you know, the forever chemicals were, were, were discovered and other contamination that, that you don't, that you don't see just in surface water, but also groundwater and drinking water. So yeah, I'm with you, uh, Rob. I don't, I don't, I don't think they're as reliable as they, uh, as, as they were back then, uh, these mm -hmm. days, because we know so much more, right? Right. I, I just be scared to, Go somewhere out in the boonies and dip this thing in to get some water and wait a minute for it to do its things, its so-called thing, and drink and find out. Well, I won't find out. I'd be dead in the morning. But <laughs> I mean, it's uh, you know, it's kind of yeah. a scary thing. I yeah. guess, like you said, there's so much well, more every year that we don't know about. Well, my my uh, son went up hiking in uh, out out of side of L.A. up into the mountains to some swimming hole that's popular with the young kids. And they brought up these straws 
then you could drink through the straw. I think they use these in uh, like some of the developing countries where they have problems that people can't drink the water straight. Um, right. I guess people were using these straws to drink the water, and everyone seemed to be fine afterward. Oh, yeah, I heard about I heard I heard about those. Well, Chris, there's, there's another topic I, that, that both Chris and I want to talk about. I know we talked about it earlier, but we don't have any time tonight. But we'll make that for the first priority about robots in Lake Tahoe, uh-huh. and we'll, we'll save oh. that for for next week. But yeah. we, have to, we have to take there's our commercial only, break. Rob, there's not only that, but we, I didn't get a chance to talk to Chris about the about the Delta smelt either, and the uh, you know the increase. Uh, dam releases and river flows to try and do that. So we got a couple of subjects for next week, Chris. Okay, yeah. well, absolutely. So, Chris and our listeners, uh, thanks, thanks for listening in with uh, with Chris with Chris Austin. The best way to find out all the things that she does, and she's a busy person. I don't even know how she if she even <laughs> sleeps at night, just producing all this stuff every day. But you go to www.mavensnotebook.com become a subscriber you can also become a sponsor it's an awesome thing to get the best news in water all and we we we, chris and i always read it and we said you know we need to have the person who wrote it knows all about it on the show all the time so she's part of our show now and has been for a long time and we're going to keep her that way absolutely all right we appreciate that so chris thank you very much for this week we will talk to you next week and uh you have a good nice cool rest of the weekend all right Good evening, everybody. Have a great week, Chris. All right, we're going to take a little uh, little break for now, and we'll be back in about two minutes or so with our featured guest, which is going to be a very interesting and technical uh, conversation. So stick around, and we'll be right back. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623 623- Five nine four eight six eight nine. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulations. 
And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. This is KCAA. Welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone Show. Appreciate everybody tuning in today. We have a really interesting guest today. His name is Dr. Michael Davidson, and he's the head of a company called Moliere. And uh, he's currently spearheading and developing the Climate Smart Agricultural Department at Moliere, and the developer of nanobubble technology, which I'm really excited about talking about, uh, for multiple verticals on a global basis. Uh, He's an Israeli-American dual citizen, and uh, he was one of the founders of a new kibbutz in Israel, which formed his adult life and love for ag, ag and agriculture innovations. He has a master's degree in water resource management, a master's in international studies, and a PhD in public policy. And I'd like to welcome, uh, before I welcome to the show, I'll ask after Chris Fossil if he speaks Hebrew or Yiddish, so I can properly introduce him that way as well. Chris, take it over. <laughs> That's a good one. I didn't think of that, uh, Rob. But hey, full disclosure, right? I've known—I I know you know Mike, Rob, but I've known Mike for for quite a long, quite a long time, actually. And I know he's got a great background. He's done a lot of consulting that I'm aware of, um, international finance corporation, for example, Water Resources Group of the World Bank, uh, the German Development Fund, Dutch Sustainable Trade Initiative, uh, Inter-American Development Bank, and a, just just above a host of other NGOs that. Uh, that I know he's worked with, basically on the design and implementation of programs for climate smart agriculture for, you know, smallholder farms. And I know he's worked in Sub Asia, East and West Africa, the Middle East, um, South America, all over the place. He's also a U.S. Department of State expert speaker on climate change and on on um, agriculture. I know he's got a so it's just a great background. So. Um, Mike, I'm awful glad that you're here today on the Water Zone, and I'd like to uh, welcome you to the show. Mike, how you doing? Very well. Uh, you know, thank you so much for the generous introduction. I was listening to the last set. It's a small world. When COVID broke out, I was very ill, sent to the hospital, and they diagnosed me as having valley fever. So it is a small <laughs> world. <laughs> Yeah, it is indeed. So, Rob, I'm, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you kick off with your with your question. Oh, okay. Uh, so, do you speak Hebrew or Yiddish? <laughs> I speak Hebrew. Uh, my parents uh, spoke Yiddish, and they made sure I did not understand it. Oh. So they could talk all they wanted without me knowing what they were talking about. They must be they must be related to my my mom and and, and my grandparents because that was the same way. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah. but how did, how did you get in? How did you get into the world of water? What what interests you to getting to nanobubble technology? Uh, 
I, I love the science. So I was really excited that you're, you're on the show today. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the pandemic, you know, thank goodness uh, my family was uh, safe and not seriously affected by it. And, but business was, and I didn't realize the extent to which the pandemic upset and really caused chaos, especially to the, to, to the developing world. So, you know, we have a pre and post pandemic life. Um, I was active in many projects as Chris was alluding to in the global South and then had to step back. As you know, travel was impossible, so uh, had to take some good looks at some local work because uh, I could not get to these countries. And Moliere, I had not heard of them, but when I talked to the four partners, uh, the headquarters is in Los Angeles in my neighborhood. I have to tell you, I'd never seen a more hyper-disruptive, innovative tool for climate-smart agriculture and they were very active in wastewater management, in aquaculture, oil and gas, mining. They had some horticultural success that had never been out into, you know, the world of vines and fruit trees and alfalfa and all the other outdoor crops that we depend on, leafy greens. So they decided uh, to recruit me and to develop this last vertical of theirs called Climate Smart Agriculture, and the support from the company and the uniqueness of its contribution have always excited me, and now that I've been there, oh, about six months or so, it's getting more exciting every day. The more kind of customers we have in all these crops, they're taken by surprise by all the benefits that this technology can bring them. Wow. I know My- Chris and I... Chris, Chris and I discussed, I'm going to turn it over to Chris here. We, we have three topics we want to go delve into, so I'm going to let Chris start, uh, start that. I was actually going to tell Mike that, uh, Mike, I don't know if you recognize this but, or realize this, rather, but back earlier this year, I may have been uh, December or so of 2022, um, we had your CEO on, Nick, uh, back then. So um, I, don't know if, I don't know if you remember that or not, but I did. I happened right before the show, I happened to go look back and uh, tell Rob that um, that I couldn't remember Nick's name, uh, but uh, but he was on back mm-hmm. um, back at the beginning of the year. So so for Rob and I, this is not this is not our uh, first exposure to Moliere, and of course we've had mm-hmm. a number of conversations at trade shows with um, mm-hmm. with Nick uh, yourself and other members of the of the staff. It's a technology that both Rob and I are very interested in. So. Let's let's get started. Let's let's start with the topic of um, of climate smart agriculture, right? It's a term, a CSA, kind of a term that maybe not everybody in our listener uh, audience would be familiar with. So, you know, kind of give us, you know, what is CSA? Define it. Where is it used? Kind of the thirty thousand view. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. So there are a lot of uh, concepts today that we all are looking to adopt to improve not only farming production, but to do it in a really sustainable way. And it's not just PR. We know that our inputs are in danger, our soil health. We all know problems with water scarcity. We know that uh, we can't keep farming the way we always have. We have to make fundamental changes. And we know that in the world today, you know, with growing population, we're a little over between seven and eight now. We're going to be 10 billion people by 2050. 
80% of that growth is going to be in the global south. You're not going to feel it here so much. And feeding that population, we right now are at a gap of 56%. We know what water scarcity is like, but we're looking at having to provide an increase in 31% of the water we're using today for agriculture to produce enough food, good food with good calories in it. And we have an 11 gigaton gap in greenhouse gas that we have to close. And finally, a 40% gap in post-harvest loss. You know, post-harvest loss around the globe is an underappreciated area of concern, and we must relate to it very seriously. So climate smart agriculture is essentially uh, another method. There's, you know, you've heard of regenerative agriculture, precision irrigation. Climate smart agriculture is the oldest form of sustainability for agriculture, I would say. Uh, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, adopted it in 2010. And we do have data from approximately 12 million farmers who adopted uh, it. It is a concept, it is a methodology, and it's also a suite of tools. So it's dynamic. One thing that I appreciate about the concept of climate smart agriculture is not stagnant. We always are looking to add innovations. We're always looking to test things. So basically, it's a, it, there are three principles. The first is mitigation. We know that when we started this intensive farming in the first green revolution in the 70s and 80s, you, this is radio, so you can't see the fact that my hand is raised up. Farming in Israel in that period was really exciting. We tripled and quadrupled yields. This is when we uncovered Roundup. This is when we uncovered all these what we thought were just the best tools in the world. And it's not because we were bad people. Maybe some of us were. But it was, you know, good decision-making is the function of having complete and perfect information. And we did. What I like to remind people is that during that period, sunscreen had yet been invented. Now we know that. We know that uh, spraying pyrethrin unabashedly, unabatedly. We know that deep plowing, we know what we do to the soil with compaction. So all of these things we know we need to change. So we have to correct those things and make sure we don't repeat mistakes. That's learning. That's mitigation. The second principle is adaptation, which means that we have to adapt to a changing environment. This is really the fun part. This is when we look at innovation and we try to find efficacious innovations that are synergistic, that really work together and are cost-effective, and really we keep our eye very closely on soil health, on increasing water use efficiency, increasing nutrient use efficiency, So, and it's adapting different crops because of different changes to our environment, right? It means farming differently. It means using more subsurface irrigation because of increasing temperatures and evaporative losses. So I can go on. This is, again, the fun part, that's adaptation. The third part, there are different agencies that define the third principle differently. The way I define it is farmer profitability and increased income. Because farmers are good business people. Especially these smallholder farmers, when we speak to them about changing the way they're they're farming, 
they are looking to adapt. But if it doesn't increase their income, no one is doing this for altruistic reasons. So you have to do, when you're doing a program using the tools of climate smart agriculture, you have to, it has to be a triple win. You have to do all three. Doing two out of three is not enough. And I'll say the big mythology about climate smart agriculture is that it does reduce variable costs. I've been doing these lectures around the world, and I get halfway done, and people stop me, and they say, Michael, we agree with everything you're saying. We just can't afford to make these changes now. I say, well, we're locking the door, and you're not getting out until you finish what I'm saying, because when you think about it, we are increasing efficiencies of, you know, labor, efficiencies in energy, efficiencies in water use. Efficiency is another way of saying conservation. So at the end of the day, we actually reduce the annual variable expenses, and we are committed, those of us who employ these principles, we are committed to a return on the investment of the capital cost in year one. We have to do that. So it's, again, it's a, we have 12 million, we have a database of 12 million growers who have reduced their carbon footprint, increased water use efficiency, these are by double digits, increased yield, and increased income. And it works. Uh, the international agencies have all adopted it, and we've been a little slow to adopt it in the United States. Um, you know, it's not easy doing. One of the things that we always have to look at wherever we are in the world are the constraints and the barriers. There's lots of constraints and barriers that make it hard to achieve good outcomes. No matter, you know, the easy part is getting into the field and working with growers. The hard part is dealing with infrastructure, with market accessibility, finance, corruption, gender inequity, all of these things that make it that make it hard and make it, this is the other thing I really love about this, this idea, is that we can't do it without multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary um, contributions and approaches. So we can't, we don't separate this from water and sanitation. We don't separate it from employment. We can't separate this from, you know, education, uh, employment, all across the board. So it is a fully robust concept, and, and I just hope that we can adopt it more widely, more broadly uh, in the United States. Can you explain? Go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. No, 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 no problem, Rob. I was just going to say. I mean, one of one, one of the greatest uh, uh, descriptions, summaries, and definitions of uh, climate smart irrigation. I mean, I, I read a bunch of stuff on it, Mike, before this, of course, and you know, you and I have discussed it separately. But I mean, it was great. So let's let's kind of look and and see if we can find out what Moliere's role is in that, right? I mean, how does mm -hmm. how does Moliere fit into this whole thing? I mean, it was a great great definition and a great summary of it, but what, what's Moliere's role? So I call Moliere an enabling environment. So number one, you have to understand that we're not putting bubbles in water that Moliere actually reconstitutes water. It is a hot water now all of a sudden that is energized with oxygen. Um, you know, the five basic inputs of agriculture are labor, energy, 
water, soil, and air. The one that we overlook always is air. And when we rob the rhizosphere, the root zone of air, and we do it in two ways. Number one is compaction. Compaction is the enemy of agriculture. We walk on a field. We drive a tractor on a field. We irrigate a field. All of these things are causing compaction. And you know, Chris, when you, when you dig down in whatever crop you're growing, you see these spindly little roots trying to survive, and they're growing sideways because they can't get down to the water, they can't get down to the nutrients, and they suffer. And when the roots are spending all this energy, there's only a finite amount of energy, the upper part of the plant just can't produce. So compaction is a huge thing, and we've got to get oxygen back into the soil. But also, hypoxia. You know, today, if you look at, if you've been following the news on the Gulf of Mexico, 4,500 miles of ocean in the Gulf of Mexico, contiguous with, you know, Texas, Louisiana, southern part of the United States, is completely, essentially dead. There's no life there any longer. About 6 million acres, I believe. And it's from nitrogen and phosphorus runoff from the old Mississippi Delta down into the Gulf of Mexico. And what has happened here is that the lower levels of the ocean there, uh, with that runoff, we get ocean acidification. So the pH is completely changed, very acidic, which means you have warmer water. And the lower levels have been oxygen depleted. Corals are being desiccated. Once corals start to turn brown, the game is up. So fish are non-existent in that body of water. So that's hypoxia. That is the robbing of oxygen from the water. And you saw the flooding that happened in California this year. We were lucky that we didn't lose as many acres as we anticipated, but we lost a lot of acres with trees. We had water up to the first crotch of the ranches, and it was because there was no oxygen in the water. There's no oxygen in the soil. It's all displaced by water. You know, I, we spent a lot of time up there trying to put in our system very quickly, but, you, you know, it was muddy and it was hard to get into these fields, and all of our girls up there, you know, were spending tons of money and time just trying to pump water out. And so by creating oxygenated water, on a constant basis, you are, we, are, we are continuously feeding not only enriched water, but oxygen into the soil, through the water. And the other thing that at the same time that nanobubble technology does is it, it, it's what we call reduction in surface tension. So that means you've all seen a drop of water on a leaf where there's one contact point kind of dancing on the leaves. So we flatten out that water molecule. That means that it, it takes less energy for the roots, for the plants, for the cell walls to absorb not only the water, but the nutrients, the mycorrhiza, whatever amendments are being delivered with the water. So again, more energy can be directed at for the plant to develop, to produce its progeny, produce its fruit, as it should be. Nanobubbles were not discovered by Moliere. They were actually discovered in the medical field uh, 40 or 50 years ago in the Far East for the same reason. 
idea of trying to move nutrient, blood, medicine through a human cell all of a sudden became easier when the water was oxygenated. Same principle. We want to use less energy for absorbing things so we can use energy to heal ourselves. So that's where nanobubbles really began. And what Moliere has done is brought them to all of these verticals and probably the most important contribution is brought them to scale. And you're talking about the medical industry, five, ten gallons a minute is a lot, but we've got single units that produce 5,000 gallons a minute, so we're in pretty much every agricultural setting. Um, there are many other benefits. I'll just name one more. I uh, don't want to dominate this. Questions are much more important than answers. Uh, the other one is Nanobubbles have a slightly negative charge and a natural scouring ability. So we're able to naturally scour the drip line, the drip emitters, clear of the biofilm that builds up on the inside of the tubing and of the emitters themselves. And I'm not going to say eliminate, because I don't know people's baseline, but certainly reduce the reliance on all these chemicals, whether it's chlorine, hydrogen peroxide, hydrochloric acid, we all use these things to keep our lines clean, and we're able now to do it with nanobubble technology, and it may sound obvious, but I'll just say the obvious. This is a chemical-free solution. So when I say it's an enabling environment, it means all your other inputs are now of added value. And the fact that we're not limited to any irrigation regime, we're installing this on center pivots, we're doing it micro sprinklers, obviously on drip. So any irrigation regime, and we're crop agnostic, so we have huge expectations that we can really bring a fundamental change and make better use of our nutrients, better use of our water, more efficient use of all of our inputs. And in terms of direct input or direct impact on greenhouse gas emissions, we can't say that we are sequestering carbon, but we reduce carbon and we reduce nitrogen, which people don't talk about enough, and the nitrogen emissions in the atmosphere, simply by enabling the water and the carbon, the nitrogen, and all the other elements to be more easily absorbed by the plant and not be evaporated into the atmosphere and not be lost to the deep runoff and improving you know, the quality of our aquifers. How, how large, well, what, what's the range of your the generators to create the nanobubbles? So the flow rates? Uh, anywhere from around 10 gallons a minute up to 5,000. And we okay. can manifold units up to any, really any flow rate. And uh, I'll just say we need three ingredients to make these nanobubbles. We need power. Uh, but it can be any power. It can be 24 volt DC. It can be 480, anything between. And we need a source of gas because this is a gas to water diffusion process. But our gas can simply be air out of the atmosphere. We can use O2. We can use, uh, you know, ozone. We can use any gas available. From a practical point of view and from an extent point of view, on the ag side, we typically are just 
in a 110 simple um, air compressor and, and directing that gas into the generator. And, um, and it's an inline system. So with the one that we are typically using in agriculture, you cut out a spool of about 48 inches of your main line downstream of your filters and just drop in a 48-inch generator, either flanged or with pallet fittings, bolt it together, and you're done. And then wow. we program it. We have a programmer. And it's, it's something that, you know, I think the company anticipated uh, doing the installations. Uh, the expertise, the talent in the agricultural distribution and contract industry day is such that the first time maybe they need a person off their shoulder, and that's it. This is a very easy thing for them to do on the well, uh, we'd like to do a whole bunch more, but we're, we've got about a minute and a half left for the show, and uh, i got 10 million questions, mm-hmm. but I, I, I love the technology. Can't, can't we can't one use this to oxygenate your drinking water as well? Well, um, I'm not going to talk about things that I don't have expertise. Um, there's surface water vertical. There is a wastewater treatment vertical, there's an aquaculture vertical, there's a mining vertical, there's oil and gas, and in terms of drinking water, I'm, I'm going to pack. I'm going to pack. Okay. How can no people problem. find out more about Moliere, uh, Michael, real quick? Uh-huh. How can people find out more about Moliere? Where can they go to get in? Where's the website? You got a website? Well, yeah, can you hear company? us? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. You're asking about... Yeah. So Moliere is, is, uh, is not a startup. Moliere is a very young company. Um, there are four partners. They are all in our headquarters. Just uh, up to the boulevard in Moliere. That's our facility for all. KCAA Loma Linda. The legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM.